Do you ever wonder who is behind egg freezing? How accurate are at-home sperm tests? How are embryos made during IVF? Who chooses the sperm used in embryo creation and severe male factor infertility? Well, if you have been dying to know, you are in for a treat because today I interview Sean Reed. He is an embryologist at the Utah Fertility Center, and he spends his days making babies. My daughter was created with the help of embryologists, and even to me, this part of our fertility journey has been sort of a mystery. I was thrilled to interview Sean, and I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say. Let's dive right in. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother, with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be, from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep, through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere, so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. I am so excited to have you on the podcast, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh. So I found you, gosh, I think a couple months ago because of one of your sperm videos and I thought it was so funny. (laughs) And ever since then, I've been following your content and I know a lot of my followers love your content too. But for those of you, for those who don't know who you are, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Yeah. Um, I am an embryologist in Utah. I've been doing embryology since 2014. Um, I am the technical supervisor and lab manager of our embryology lab. Um, that's kind of mostly about me. I have a master's degree in embryology and andrology, and I really enjoy doing embryology. Um, what got you into that social media? Oh, um, lots of embryologists, we all have kind of similar stories where we all kind of fell into it. Um, I think there's starting to become more people that like heard about embryology earlier on in their education and then like started to lean towards that way. Mm -hmm. For me, I was leaning towards something medical field. Yeah, I was thinking medical school. Um, So that's the route I was on in my undergrad um, I chose human biology as my major just because then I'd get all my prereqs for medical school. Um, full disclosure, like I, I was not a student growing up. Like <laughs> I didn't have a lot of like <laughs> guidance as a kid. So like mm-hmm. high school, like I was there. I went, <laughs> yeah, like I, showed I, up. I graduated somehow, <laughs> um, but did not like, <laughs> I don't think I learned anything in high school yeah. other than like how to play sports at mm-hmm. some on some level. Um, so, you know, I get to college. I'm like, Oh man, I don't know. I don't know what to, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Like how am I supposed to know? And so I was like, all right, medical field stable. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I gotta learn how to like read to, so I can study. <laughs> um, okay. I wasn't that bad, but yeah. Um, but taking like science courses, especially the one oh ones are hard because yeah. science is a whole new language. And yeah. Those one-on-one courses were tough for me, um, but got past them, started to get better at like understanding science. And I got higher up in my science classes. At the same time, I shadowed these two physicians for about a year and a half mm-hmm. because I wanted to make sure like, 
is this what I want to do? Right. And shadowing those physicians really helped me realize like that didn't seem like the route I wanted to go. Yeah. Granted, one of them was like a family practice doctor in Idaho. And all he did was like, <laughs> look at old people's warts and rashes. And I was like, oh, <laughs> man, this is, not, yeah. this, is, this is not my jam. Right. But I had gotten higher for my science classes. I was finding myself really enjoying science. Um, and what specifically changed my trajectory was taking virology, um, mm. the course virology. It was a really cool class. There was only like seven of us in it. So it was very intimate. And it just sparked that passion of like, mm -hmm. ooh, the microscopic world, like yeah. things that we don't, there's so many things we don't know. Like what? I can't just mm -hmm. like Google the answer to some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when I was like, oh man, I want to go into, I wanted to go into research. I wanted to, I almost went into virology research mm -hmm. um, but then came across embryology and you know how it's a combination of medicine and science and it's it's bench work you get to work with your hands you get to get a sense of like pride in what you do so that's how I kind of found myself in, in embryology that's amazing I love that because a lot of people who listen to this podcast know my story but anyone who doesn't my husband and I had to conceive through IVF because of male factor infertility. And to me, the embryologist seemed like a mystery box, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. especially going yeah. to the IVF clinic, even though I'm a doctor who works in fertility, I don't work on the embryology side. And, you know, when you're conceiving naturally, it's not necessarily a part of the medical team that you're used mm -hmm. to having. Yet for me, and why I'm so excited to have you on, I have so many questions for you, even myself being a doctor, I'm kind of, it's kind of a selfish podcast because mm -hmm. I'm just so curious, one, how people get into that profession and, and then who you are and what you do and in helping people like me create families who can't do it on their own. So mm -hmm. um, let's get into that. Like, I have a couple questions for you about egg freezing and sperm and, and IVF and stuff. Is that the sole thing that embryologists do, first and foremost, is it mostly that you work in IVF clinics? Yes. Um, it's funny that you talk about how mysterious we are. We really are. Like <laughs> You're so mysterious. Like, you don't even see them when you, like, at least in my clinic. Yeah. You know, when I went in for my egg retrieval, I walk past the office. I don't know where they are. I just hear of them. And I don't mm -hmm. know how much you know about my story, but we didn't know if my husband had any sperm. Mm -hmm. And so I went in for my egg retrieval and he had to do a micro or he just did a tessie, I think a testicular retrieval surgery to try to retrieve sperm. And I remember when I came out of my egg retrieval, I chose not to use anesthesia really stupid, but I was trying to like not use as many medications as I could. Yeah, so it was wow. pretty traumatic in and of itself. And yeah. the embryologist came in and she told me at that point that they still hadn't found sperm in my husband's sample. And it just like my whole like world came crashing down because we'd already been struggling with infertility for like six years. And here, like this person, it's like, it was up to them. Like these people in this room that I don't mm -hmm. know are trying to find yeah. sperm. And if they can't, if these people can't find sperm, like I'm not going to be a mother. It was just so crazy. And in that moment, I was just like, who are the embryologists and what are they doing? And how hard is it to find sperm? And are you guys like, did you have a good night's sleep last night? Like, what's yeah. going on? So, yeah, I was just thinking about this the other day because there are some 
there's some Instagram accounts that I follow of like fertility clinics that are, you know, they post a lot and I know the doctors um, and just one of them posted the other day and I thought, who are your embryologists? Yeah. Like I'm very connected. I consider, I think very connected in the embryology community. Like mm -hmm. I go to lots of conferences. Mm -hmm. I'm on our shh, top secret Facebook group page. That nobody's <laughs> supposed to know about like, I know embryologists in our field. I have no idea who is working in your lab on these mm -hmm. accounts. Like even to me, it's like, do you guys even have embryologists? Like, yeah. Cause you're, uh, you got to, cause you're an IVF clinic, but like you never show the lab. You don't show a single person from like, even to me, it's like yeah. these mysterious people that like, yeah. So to validate you, we are very hidden. I know. I feel um, like you shouldn't be. For me, I feel like it would have given me peace of mind. Honestly, what went through my mind a lot about the embryologist, I wanted to talk to them. I wanted mm -hmm. to ask them questions and be like, you know, what, what does, what do my eggs look like? What does my husband's sperm look like? Like when you say you can't find sperm, what does that mean? You know? And it's just like this part of our journey that I wasn't able to like ever know about. It, it was just this mysterious mm -hmm. thing. And so anyways, you're here to shed light on that, which is cool. And um, we're going to talk about IVF and sperm, but first let's talk about egg freezing because when we talk about embryology, there's lots of different seasons that people can be in that might need or utilize the services of reproductive support or things like egg freezing. Can you just, for those listening who don't know, walk us through kind of what egg freezing is from an embryologist perspective? Like, what are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's helpful to get a little bit into the cryobiology of freezing eggs and embryos. Technically, when we say freezing, what we're referring to is vitrification. It's mm -hmm. a lot easier to say freezing, but yeah. <laughs> understanding what vitrification means kind of helps uh, you understand what cryobiology is. And then it helps you understand why eggs are tougher to freeze versus embryos. Oh, interesting. So I'm just going to use the word. Yeah, I'm gonna use the word freeze. That's a lot easier than vitrification. Um, so when we're freezing, let's start with an embryo. When we're freezing an embryo, we place them into an hyper a hyperosmotic solution, which draws um, water out of the cells. Hmm. Um, so there's, it's like salt and it's mostly sugars that are in these in the in these medias mm -hmm. uh, you put the embryo in there and it's going to draw water out of the cell you don't want water in the cells because when water freezes it expands and when you're talking about a very small amount of space a cell which has mm -hmm. a lot of water that expansion can be really bad it can just flat out rupture the cell oh. so that's like a key part of freezing a cell is you got to dehydrate it so remove water yeah that water is drawn out and then there's cryoprotectants in the media that replaces that water. So you, you'll kind of see, you see it more with eggs, but you'll see things shrink down mm -hmm. and they'll kind of re-expand. And this is over a span of about eight minutes. Yeah. Um. So we draw water out of the cell, replace it with cryoprotectant, expose it to this other really strong cryoprotectant. And then we, we put on a very small device with a very small amount of media and plunge it directly into liquid nitrogen because liquid nitrogen is insanely cold. Mm -hmm. And by plunging it in there, 
the the freezing rate is so fast there is a there's still kind of a, a a temperature danger zone in which water will turn to ice yeah i can't remember the specific numbers and it depends if you're talking about fahrenheit or celsius mm-hmm. um but there's a specific danger zone in which water turns to ice by plunging it into liquid nitrogen that embryo the temperature of that embryo will plummet so fast that it passes through that danger zone so so quickly that if there is any water present it doesn't even have time to crystallize wow it's just frozen in fractions of a second that's and that's crazy. the definition of vitrification you're technically not freezing cuz freezing mm-hmm. means going from mm-hmm. a liquid to a solid right vitrification you are a frozen liquid so any liquid water that's in the cell Mm -hmm. it's still in there and it's technically frozen but it's not in a solid state because it didn't have a chance to crystallize that's amazing i love that i followed all of that for anyone else (laughs) hopefully they might have to rewind that but that's perfect yeah i've made videos on it and it's it's a lot easier to like write out a script and then like here's exactly how i need to say it and (laughs) no you did great i think that's (laughs) great so now you talk about the difference between freezing an embryo and an egg. Yeah. Same process. Your protocol might be a little bit different, um, but you're doing the same thing. You're trying to remove water from the cell. Um, water escapes these cells through a channel protein called aquaporin. Mm-hmm. An embryo, a day five blastocyst embryo, typically has a few hundred cells. So with that, you're going to have significantly increased surface area mm-hmm. on all these cells. So increased exposure to this media that's going to draw water out. Yeah. But also these cells um, have a higher amount of these aquaporins on them. So water gotcha. is removed from the cells much more easily versus an egg mm-hmm. does not have as many of these aquaporin channels and it is just one cell. Gotcha. So if you stress it out, if it doesn't go well, it's an all or nothing shot versus mm-hmm. a blastocyst embryo that has a few hundred cells. If you stress it out a little bit, you know, if you stress some of the cells out, the embryo can probably rebound and be okay. An egg, man, you got to be pretty darn perfect for it to go well. Wow. That's so crazy. So in this process, is there a lot of user difference or is it like, it doesn't matter who you are, what embryologist you are, the protocol is exactly the same and like, it's going to be the same. Or is it like in any other thing where some people are better at it than others? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is that a loaded question that embryologists aren't supposed to talk about? I'd say it's a, it's a, it's a question that I consider that's up for debate but not many people are debating. Okay. <laughs> My answer to that question is we don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we good. try to think that we do. I'd say the the, the IVF community answer would be absolutely mm-hmm. that embryologist experience, technique, protocol, type of media you use is going to have a significant impact on outcome. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it won't have any impact. Absolutely. Like, Freezing eggs will humble you. And by you, I mean it humbled me when I was a <laughs> young, arrogant <laughs> embryologist. When I, you know, 
I'd frozen at that point, thousand of em thousands of embryos. Like mm -hmm. I know how to I know how to freeze. Like ain't no ain't no problem. Yeah. Um, and then I uh we freeze for um a donor egg uh, network mm -hmm. in the US and Canada. So what we do is we can recruit egg donors to freeze their eggs and then it kind of goes into this bank and patients in other clinics throughout the US and Canada can then buy these eggs and we'll ship them to those clinics. Mm -hmm. In order to freeze for this egg bank, you need to be trained by them and validated. Like they need to make sure you are getting good outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got humbled. Cause I was like, Oh, there's gonna be no problem. Um, and when, you know, <laughs> my eggs were not surviving. I was like, what the hell this can't be right. Like, so this ain't me. You know, you guys can be bad, baby. whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, there's, there's a, there's a learning curve, um, that, I think once you get past that, though, like a, a, a well, you put two fully experienced embryologists that free have frozen lots of eggs, have thawed lots of eggs, and they do it frequently. Like their technique is on point. Like I can't imagine you're going to see much difference mm -hmm. between the two. Where you will see a big difference, and this is this is a hard topic because mm -hmm. there's a just a big dark cloud of unknown still. Yeah. Um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, ASRM, removed the designation of research on freezing eggs in, I think it was October 2013. Oh. So we've only been freezing eggs for patients, not under the banner of research, for 10 years. Yeah. Wow. One, there's not a lot of people that have done it. Like mm -hmm. if you're really looking for some solid data, not a lot of people have frozen their eggs. It's growing. Right. Like there's a lot of people that you think there's a lot. Okay. But their problem is a lot of those patients haven't come back to use their eggs yet to get oh. the outcome data. Oh, interesting. So we may have hundreds of thousands of patients that have frozen their eggs. How many of them have come back and used them? Mm, interesting. Common scenario, uh, you know, a woman freezes her eggs at 30 and she ends up getting married or was already married, whatever, ends up having kids. And naturally, she doesn't even need to come back. She doesn't use her eggs. She ends up just right. using the Oh, yeah. What, what happens in that situation? Because it's interesting in the IVF world, I'm sure you know, and you know, there's a lot of different people's opinions on things around that. But I feel like once an embryo is made, especially in the more like religious communities, there's a lot of like, you can't just discard them or like, there's just mm -hmm. a lot of like thoughts and feelings about it. But with eggs, you know, at least for a woman, you know, we lose eggs every month, you know, we're always losing our eggs. And, you know, some people will rationalize it, that you're just taking them and freezing them. But then is there any issue that you see with people of having moral issues with discarding eggs or is there no difference between that and embryos or what do you see in that regard? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because one, there's a huge disconnect between the lab and, mm -hmm. and patient experience and, and one that I really want to start to bridge and we can get to this later, but like doing more research with mm -hmm. the psychosocial impact of of infertility and IVF treatment. That's something I want to get into, but yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not sure on, on discarding eggs. There may not be, it, it, this is, this is a developing situation with freezing yeah. eggs. Right. Um, and that this is something that I think 
we need to investigate more. Um, this is a topic that I'm very interested in. I made one video a few months ago, which kind of scared me off. <laughs> kind of scared me off for a minute. Yeah. Um, it was a video of asking how often do women think about their oh, yeah. eggs? I saw that video. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I try to be respectful of it. And I got some, some heat, understandably, like I'm, you know, I'm a guy talking about women and their reproduction, but I'm trying to approach it as like a very mm -hmm. humble, I'm trying to understand and, and learn. Yeah. Um, but this is a topic that's very interesting to me, like, because the IVF community is pushing more and more egg freezing as a great option. I think it is a great option, but I also think there's a lot we still don't know. And I think yeah. we need to tread a little bit lightly and ask the questions we should be asking and, and looking at the things we need to look at. And the outcome is the big one that we just don't know yet. Yeah. Wow. That's such a good because point. Because patients aren't coming back and using their exit or if they have, there's not a lot of them. And even if there are quite a lot of them, each clinic is kind of its own island. Yeah. People aren't really, it's not they're keeping secrets. It's just unless somebody's trying to run research mm -hmm. and trying to collect the data, you just kind of have your own outcomes mm -hmm. and use that as your own performance indicators. So there's just a lot we don't know on how well are these eggs going to do. And then the question you started with, like, is there a difference between embryologists is there a difference between type of media that they use or different protocols mm -hmm. hopefully not a huge difference but we may find like oof that yeah. one clinic in new york that is very busy and freezes lots of eggs turns out they were not very good at it but they didn't know right because they weren't getting outcome data oh, one wow. strength that we have at my clinic in utah is because we freeze these donor eggs these eggs are purchased by patients thawed mm -hmm. and used so we have a lot of outcome mm. data the problem is this this is on uh egg donors so right. a young healthy hopefully fertile population right that's kind of the only thing we have to go off of right now is how do eggs donor eggs perform mm -hmm. um and there's variation like i am nothing if not very consistent i do everything in the lab exactly the same way every time that way if there's an issue i can adjust and see how that adjustment does if i'm just like oh sometimes i use eight minutes sometimes i do 10 minutes just mm -hmm. kind of you know <laughs> i don't roll with that i'm like eight minutes on the dot mm -hmm. 45 seconds you know um so for me when i see an egg donor perform really well you know egg donor number 100 gets 90% blast rate, mm -hmm. but then egg donor number 102 gets 40% blast rate. I kind of removing, I'm kind of removing myself as the variable. Right. Like, well, I right, froze, right. froze them exactly the same. So yeah. not to like excuse myself, but it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I'm sure there are variations. I mean, you know, being on the clinical side, we know there's a huge variation in health and I'm assuming, I don't know what you see as an embryologist, probably nothing. My husband works in biotech and they are in research in like cancer treatments and they get a lot of donor blood and they do all sorts of stuff on cells. And so similar to kind of what you're doing, but very different, but 
they can tell a big difference between the donors that come in, you know, in the sense of like one person's blood will be like full of fat, you know, and another person's Mm -hmm. will have like a shot immune system. And it really impacts their studying and their data, but it's based on the health of the person. And they really don't know anything other than a few markers about that person. So just from your perspective in general, and just from what you know in the world, do you see, or do you know, or does anyone talk about it in your space of like looking at the health of the person on any sort of metric and seeing how the eggs do, or is it just like whoever sends in eggs, like there's really no tracking mm-hmm. of that. Um, yeah, no. Um, with egg donors, I mean, they go through a pretty good screening process. Um, from what I can tell, it's not very thorough with like health habits. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the big basic ones, like, do they smoke? Do they use mm-hmm. drugs? Do they drink? How much do they drink each week? A lot of it is looking at um, uh, family history of mm-hmm. disease, trying to screen out possible, you know, carriers of certain diseases. Um, and then, yeah, that, that, that's really all they're screening for. Yeah. So not a lot. Yeah. And looking further upstream is something that I am very interested in because I'm sure we're going to get into the topic of egg and sperm quality. Yeah. Um, which is a tough one. You know, what's impacting egg mm-hmm. and sperm quality? And that's a hard question to answer because I don't think we are looking very for very far upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get too philosophical on how Western medicine works, but when somebody comes into a fertility clinic, they're looking for medical intervention, or at least yeah. that's how the, the medical field looks at it. Like we're here to practice the medical mm-hmm. intervention, the time for exercise and diet, even though it's going to be brought up, that time is kind of passed. Like the mm-hmm. doctors aren't nutritionists. Right. Um, they're going to look at the problem and what they can do to medically intervene for the problem. Yeah. So back to the egg donors, what are we looking at? Not much health wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I asked our third party team if we check vitamin D mm-hmm. on our egg donors, cause vitamin D is so yeah. involved in like, I don't know, everything in the body, <laughs> everything. Yeah. Um, there's thousands of receptors in the body for vitamin D and mm-hmm. reproduction is not excluded for male and female. Um, so we check all of our, I first went and asked our nurses, I said, do we check vitamin D on all of our patients? Mm-hmm. And they said, yes, all of our patients, we check vitamin D. Oh, I was like, okay, cool. So like our female and male patients, like, oh, no, 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 uh, not our male patients, just our female <laughs> patients. I was like, okay, uh, so that's not all of our patients. That's right. about uh, 50% of our patients. Oh my gosh, right. Vitamin D. And then I asked our third party, do we check? I was like, well, we check our vitamin D on all of our female patients. So we check it on our egg donors, right? And they're like, well, no. Why don't we check vitamin D on our egg donors? Well, because they're egg donors, they're healthy, they're fertile. Like, why would we need to check their vitamin D? It's like, guys, look outside right now. It's it's yeah. January 21st. Like, when was the last time you guys saw the sun? <laughs> yeah, or even just gathering that data. I mean, okay, yes. then we have a, a huge data set of people who have these outcomes have this D. I mean, why would, that's the craziest thing to me is 
being a naturopathic doctor, you know, you're talking about who does the upstream stuff. Like that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And we very much do know a lot of what impacts egg and sperm quality, not necessarily the conventional medical model, but we love data, right? Because it's mm-hmm. with data, you can make outcomes. And it's just so silly to me when more data isn't collected. Even I do a lot of work with IVF people going through IVF and I'm running all sorts of other labs outside of what their IVF doctor is running. Cause I'm like, why aren't they caring to look at this? And so it is, it's just like mind boggling that they have the opportunity to, to do it. And you can't go back. You can't go back and like get that data at another nope. time. Yeah. So it's so mm-hmm. silly, especially something like vitamin D, you know, that's been shown to even improve AMH levels, you know, in the mm-hmm. conventional model, they'd be like, nothing can improve your egg count, but that might not be true. So that's really mm-hmm. interesting. So this, the comment that you made about male fertility segues me into the next section, which is about male fertility, something I'm really passionate about because I feel like being a female in a male factor infertility case and being a root cause doctor in the IVF model, I saw how incredibly backwards everything is and how forgotten men are and how they're just not even like cared about at least from my perspective, what would you say to that? Like, I know you obviously work with egg and sperm, but do you feel like the sperm are treated equally on the same level as eggs as far as quality or concern or anything? Like, tell me just about your experience with sperm. Yeah. Um, I, uh, frustratingly agree with your assessment on how much, um, the male side is disregarded when it comes to fertility treatment um first off i don't think it's any like you know malintent i don't think there's any malpractice going on there i don't think anybody just like hates men and so they don't want to treat men Mm -hmm. um it's an interesting question like why why do we only focus on female reproduction when it comes to infertility. And I've kind of talked about this on social media and it's so interesting to hear the different responses of people. It's like, mm-hmm. well, of course they're going to blame women. It's like, whoa, <laughs> yeah. that's an, I mean, that's one angle you could take it of like aggression towards women. But if you look at the fertility field, like uh, there's a lot of female mm-hmm. doctors that, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a uh, hatred towards women for it. it's, it's, women are getting more treatment than men as Mm -hmm. a result. So that's not the answer. I think what's going on is one, the egg obviously contributes significantly more to early embryotic development. It's what is going to have all the mitochondria and all the components for those first rounds of cell division. Um, So that's one aspect of it. Also female reproduction is just a bit more complicated. There's Mm -hmm. a lot more moving parts, a few more hormones and it's cyclical men are pretty straightforward, like produce sperm. Mm -hmm. So that, and then I think if you combine a little bit of the uh, business aspect of IVF, Mm -hmm. if you look at it from that point of view, I think IVF over the years, the business side is starting to understand like, okay, this is medicine and it's expensive medicine. Our, I hate to use it, these terms, but our main customer that we need to like sell this product to is going to be females. Mm-hmm. Like try and get a man to go to the doctor mm-hmm. and then also pay $15,000 for like the treat. Like, yeah, 
that's a dying business model right out the gate. <laughs> totally. So I think it's a combination of those two. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that anybody like hates men. Um, reproductive endocrinologists, from what I can tell, they don't get a lot of training in male infertility. Yeah, I found that and to be very true. Yeah, when I asked the nurses the vitamin D question, they said, "Well, we don't, we don't draw vitamin D on men." Like what? Like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, we just do a semen analysis. Semen analysis. If there's any issues, then we we refer them to reproductive urologists. Right. Like why? Why are we calling? I know. Well, why, and the why reproductive, are we calling our doctors? And and in my experience, the reproductive urologists don't know how to actually improve sperm quality. So they're also massive... in for. The yeah, intervention. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's this massive disconnect, which, you know, one day I'm going to write a book or something because there needs to be this information out there. I mean, I was just like astonished at the level. And, you know, the one reproductive urologist I went to, I just wanted to know what they would say. I knew the answers. I've read all the literature. I mean, all of it. That's an exaggeration. I've read a majority of the literature on, on male fertility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I asked him and he's like one of the top ones in the country. You know, what can we what can we do to like improve sperm? And he's just like, nothing, really nothing. He's like, you could maybe take a vitamin, like a Centrum vitamin, but it probably won't do anything. And I literally wanted to shake him. I'm like, first of all, I wouldn't even tell anyone to take a Centrum vitamin. You're better off not because it's like so such a crappy supplement. And I'm like, you're not even what is reading it? Is your that own... the, it's is that like the brand the, name? Yeah, Centrum. It's like the one that's on a commercial. You know, it's like the very like medicalized, the, very the low line quality. of colors or whatever. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's yeah. so full of fillers and crap that I I would say like you're better off not taking any vitamins than that one. But yeah, I'm just like you're not even reading your own literature. I could have brought him a stack, you know, five inches thick of the literature that he could be helping people with, and that just like infuriates me. It's really frustrating. But given that, you know, in my profession, we're all about prevention and trying to reach people before you know, they maybe even need to go down the IVF route or if they're going to go down the IVF route, how to optimize. And, you know, we're big believers that you can improve egg and sperm quality. You know, you can improve your mitochondrial function. You can improve all of these things. It does take a little bit more time. It can't happen, you know, the month that you go in for an IVF round. But with that, sperm testing is a big part of figuring out, does a man even have an issue to begin with? And, um, I saw one of your videos on Instagram and you were talking about legacy, which is a test I really like as well. Cause I think one of the obstacles for men is that, you know, they don't really want to go get tested. You don't want to go ejaculate at a clinic. And so there are options now where people can do sperm testing at home. But my question for you is, do you think that they're accurate? Do you think that's a good option for men? Because in my dream world, as soon as a couple is like, we're thinking about kids. I think a man should have a sperm test just to know what's going on with him. But mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I did. Um, I reviewed a couple of other at home test options on Instagram um, out of curiosity and to kind of confirm what I assumed on the strengths or weaknesses of those tests. Um, one of them was, I think, a sperm check what it's called you can buy it at like cvs um what that one does is it just checks for a protein present in sperm head so as long as the concentration is high enough it'll give you basically a positive or negative that you have two hundred fifty thousand sperm per milliliter or zero (laughs) so the big weakness of that one is you don't know if you have zero sperm or if you have two hundred forty nine thousand right per milliliter because 
either positive or negative. So that one, I would save your money and not do something like that because it's just going to give you positive or negative if sperm are present. It will tell right. you absolutely nothing about that sperm if they're alive and moving or how they look. Um, the another one I reviewed was it was pretty cool. Like you, you basically put your sperm on a little slide and put it in this little box machine thing that get, uh, records a microscopic video of your sperm. Kind of low hmm. quality video, but still pretty cool trick. Yeah. <laughs> and then sends to your phone, so you can see a video of your sperm. Um, and I think the way they promote it is then you can take this to your doctor. And the joke I kind of made was like, your doctor is going to go, oh. <laughs> neat cool. <laughs> sperm let's do a sperm I, analysis i don't know what that what that means right um so again i would say probably save my money on those types of tests yeah uh, the strength of a test like legacy and there's a couple other out there that do this yeah is you're going to collect your sample ship it to them to their lab same day and then they will perform a full semen analysis so you're getting a full same semen analysis as if you went into a doctor's office um and you know, they have you add a media that helps preserve the sperm but sperm are resilient like mm -hmm. unless they get really hot or really cold like they're going to survive for a few days so if you ship it overnight they do a semen analysis next day like it it's going to be the same as if you had done a fresh sample um and then you can also another strength of that is like legacy has the option to do uh, the sperm DNA fragmentation yeah. that's on, on top of it, which is kind of the up and coming uh, parameter that you can check to give it a little bit more in-depth insight into the quality of your sperm. A semen analysis is, it's a pretty, uh, it's the best we've got, but there's not much that you can see is yeah. how I would word it. You can see the obvious. Mm -hmm. it's but with sperm, like you can see if he obviously has a low count, obviously has low motility percentage or low progressive motility or has really bad sperm morphology. We can see what's obvious. Um, but if there's something more going on there below the surface, it's hard to tell. And that's where the DNA fragmentation comes in. It's kind of just taking a closer look where they're seeing, all right, is the what is the DNA integrity Present as a percentage of the sperm you know, how are they doing um mm -hmm. and this is where i'd be interested to hear a lot of your advice on sperm quality and like what affects sperm quality because this is a tough topic i feel like to give solid advice on other than a lot of the don'ts there's lots of don'ts mm -hmm. when it comes to your sperm but yeah, I love to hear yeah. you. Don't oh yeah, we do. we could we could go into all of that. I have a whole course on that. Um, but yeah, happy to chat. So as far as the sperm goes, there's a lot that we can do, right? At the end of the day, you know, sperm, as you know, are mostly DNA, and then they don't have a lot of antioxidant and repair capacities, so they're so fragile, which is such a silly design. I'm like, who designed sperm? They have to be outside of the human body because they can't be as hot as the body. It's like, why? Why is this yeah. the way it is? Mm -hmm. But um, there are a lot of things that you can do, and you know, we can get into that. I have a whole episode on it on the podcast. I have a whole course on it, but um, maybe offline I'll chat with you more about that. But for anyone who wants that information, check out my other mm -hmm. episodes on sperm health because I go into that in depth and there's actually a lot of literature 
on it because sperm are so easy to test. And it's so other than waiting, you know, almost three months between interventions, you know, you can see changes really quickly. It's harder for eggs, right? We're doing a lot of assumptions and IVF has actually given us a lot of great data because it allows us to kind of see what's going on in the reproductive world where natural conception doesn't allow for it. Mm-hmm. So in certain ways, you know, IVF has, but although there's a lot of research on male fertility, I still feel there's a huge disconnect in the fertility space. There's hardly any support coming for these guys, even though there's so much that they could be doing. And there's so many things from an herbal lifestyle, natural medicine, you know, environmental perspective. And it's such a shame. So yeah, we'll definitely get into that more, but I have a question Mm -hmm. for you on choosing sperm when you're an embryologist looking. So I don't know if you know my story either, but I discovered our male factor infertility in school under a microscope. (laughs) So you wanted to check your husband's sample. No, we were literally in class in our sperm analysis class. We weren't Uh trying yet. And we just needed a sample. You were in class together. No, I was like in class and we needed a sample for our class. So I'm like, honey, I need a sample of your sperm. Not at all thinking anything Uh was wrong. And I go make my slides on the microscope and there's no sperm. Mm -hmm. And I just keep thinking like, maybe I did it wrong. And I keep making slide after slide. And I hear like all my colleagues, you know, oh my God, look at the sperm, you know, because they're so cool to see under the microscope. They're so little and they swim so Mm -hmm. fast. And I like, like on my sixth slide or something, I saw like one dead sperm, like floating through the field of view. And mm-hmm. it was just the worst day of my whole life. Like it, it just hit me that, oh my God, my husband has no sperm. What? Like, so we didn't find out about our infertility at all in the traditional way. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, that's, there's never an easy way to find that out, but that's a gnarly way of It was really gnarly. Out. And then I had to tell him, we weren't at the doctor's. I had to tell yeah. him that night. He's like, how'd my, how was my sample, you know? Yeah. And I literally, you know, had to break down and tell him like, I don't know, you don't have any sperm and I don't know why, you know, but I was like, but we're going to figure it out. You know, I was such like, I was still in school, so I couldn't even run my own labs or anything at that point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we popped around to all different people trying to figure it out. I know so much more now. I mean, the level of information of male fertility. Do you know what the cause of his was? Well, so there it's kind of unknown in certain ways. And there was one huge mistake that our fertility doctor made. So when we first went to a conventional doctor, he ran a lot of the traditional tests. And this is something that irks me about doctors sometimes is that they don't go over your labs with you. They'll just call you if there's like an abnormal. Mm-hmm. And that I think is very frustrating because he did a bunch of the traditional hormone testing and genetic testing, Mm -hmm. but he was like, everything looks normal. He, my husband had bilateral varicoceles. Mm -hmm. So he had like an anatomical issue and his hormones were like slightly off, but his testosterone was fine, you know, in the sense that that wasn't the issue. So we were like, is this seriously just from varicoceles? You know, so we went down that whole route and did surgery and tried to fix it and it didn't get any Mm -hmm. better. And then we went down to the functional medicine world and I, at that point, was a doctor so I could run tests and he had high heavy metals and he had mercury and all of these other things that can impact sperm. So we did chelation and we did, you know, we just did all of these things. But right when we were getting ready to do IVF after six years of trying to figure this out, I did carrier genetic testing on us. You know, mm-hmm. I just ran it 
And it was in that that my husband's genes came back where he had a cystic fibrosis associated disorders mutation. And because he didn't have full-blown cystic fibrosis, he didn't have both genes, the doctor mm. never told us anything about mm. that. And so he probably had an issue with the development of his vas deferens. Mm -hmm. They never told us. They never caught it. Like yep. it was only me doing that genetic testing that I found it out. So that's our biggest theory as to like why, like it was just a, a blockage issue. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't believe that we went through so many doctors and no one ever, because in their mind, they're like, we don't need to find the root cause. Let's just do IVF. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know if he even had any sperm in his Did testicles. They did the topic of using a sperm donor come up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not just you guys. I mean, did the doctors and nurses bring up you considering using? Yeah. I mean, they basically were like, well, your options at this point are you can move forward with IVF and do, you know, surgery to see if there's sperm. You can do testicular mapping, which is where they like go in and poke around and see if there's sperm. They're like, worst case scenario, you know, using a sperm donor. At that point, my husband was very, like, we were willing to try everything mm -hmm. to not have a sperm donor, even though that's such a noble path to go down if someone needs that. We just, mm -hmm. he wanted so badly to, you know, see himself and his children. And it's just so sad, yeah. you know, it's just a sad, sad situation and especially male factor stuff. So there's just not a lot of like investigation in the conventional side. They don't care that much about root cause. And I was the one pushing so much and no one could really help us. So I sort of took his health under my own wing and how I found out a lot about these things, but that's not a role I should have needed to play, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when we went forward with IVF, eventually they still didn't know if there was going to be any sperm in his testicles and they only caught a few. And so that's a question I have for you. Do you do a lot of Tessie, like mm -hmm. uh, the testicular retrieval stuff? They mm -hmm. told us that the sperm were immature, so they weren't moving or swimming by nature of how young they were. So mm -hmm. it was really hard for them to choose good quality sperm. Is that true? Like, can you speak to that? So did, did he do a, a Tessie the same day that you did an egg retrieval? It was like the, like the noon of the day before my egg retrieval. They like okay. took chunks of tissue. They like uh -huh. biopsied his testicles. Okay. Okay. So then they kept it overnight mm -hmm. and then you had the egg retrieval the next day. Yeah. So um, you, you kind of get a little bit into anatomy, physiology, sperm grow and develop in the testes and the seminiferous tubules. Mm -hmm. um, and then they travel to the epididymis where they go through the final stages of maturation mm -hmm. and gain the ability to be modal, to yeah. the ability to swim. So when you do a Tessie, which stands for testicular sperm extraction, mm -hmm. you're kind of going further upstream. You're just going to remove some of those seminiferous, it's such a hard word. I know. Seminiferous. Tubules. Yeah. Um, you remove some of those, you kind of just like, uh, cut them up a bunch, uh, cut them up a bunch. We use, we use a, an enzyme that can dissolve that tissue so that, cause the sperm, the, they're, they're really like really long, they're tubes. Yeah. Um, they're totally closed off. So with their sperm in there, they're inside the oh, tubes and you gotta so get the sperm crazy. out of them. And usually when you're doing a Tessie, you're dealing with very low concentrations to begin yep. with. So 
trying to get the sperm out and then trying to find the sperm and then try and find good enough sperm. It's a long process. Um, so to say that they were immature, they likely were probably finding the occasional sperm that just wasn't modal, meaning it wasn't moving. Mm-hmm. Based on what I said, textbook knowledge would say, well, they shouldn't be moving because they haven't gone to the epididymis. And that's right. what doctors will say, like, oh, well, they won't be moving because they're testicular sperm. Like, yes, textbook says shouldn't be moving. Right. Embryologists, hands-on, firsthand experiences, once you put sperm in our media, in our sperm media, mm. if they are alive, they'll start, they'll start moving. They'll at least we say twitch they'll at least give you a little twitch some of them will be full-on swimming it may take a little bit but not long like i'd say within 15 minutes of being mm. exposed to that like if they're alive they should show signs of movement so for them say they weren't they were only finding immature sperm was probably them saying like we're having a hard time finding modal yeah okay sperm. so that you've answered a question for me and like they didn't answer it because I, in my mind i was like well they shouldn't be moving at all because they're immature sperm why are you trying to find sperm that are moving that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. that makes total sense now and makes me feel a lot better but that's what they were having a hard time finding which mm-hmm. does that mean that the other sperm would have been dead um likely yeah, yeah. um it's so interesting injecting sperm that aren't moving that's like last resort like because at that point you're just putting up a prayer hoping that the sperm's alive and it's likely not if i'm doing an ICSI with a testicular sperm sample um i'm only going to inject sperm that are at at the very least twitching Twitching, and that's the same with all embryologists are going to be operating under that right okay well that makes total sense because i think mm -hmm. they only found a total of like eight that they could even inject in the cells or maybe some of them weren't even moving and that's why we only ended up with four embryos Mm. um even i'm pretty young you're not really young but in the ivf world i'm really young quote unquote um Mm -hmm. and despite all of that you know we only still had four embryos and that makes total sense so outside of testicular retrieval which is the most extreme most people don't have to do that unless they have severe male factor infertility but a lot of people do find me because they're looking for that support. So anyone listening, maybe that's helpful. But just for regular ICSI, ICSI for people who don't know is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is like where you take tweezers, right? Can you kind of speak to the difference between regular IVF and ICSI? And do you feel like ICSI is better or worse? Or is it something you would do no matter what, or just for sperm issues? And how do you pick? How do you pick? I mean, this is like, mm-hmm. do you feel like you're playing God because you pick the sperm? It's so wild. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just I've gotten comfortable with walking around with a significant god complex. It's, <laughs> it's not a big deal. All right, conventional insemination or conventional IVF. That is where um you, you do your egg retrieval, we get your eggs, we put them in usually drops. That's usually how people culture our eggs embryos, drops of media. Um and then We'll get the sperm sample, isolate the modal sperm from the semen, put it in the same culture media that the eggs are in, and then just shoot a bunch of sperm into the same drop that the eggs are in. Mm -hmm. Let them culture overnight so the sperm can just go in, find the eggs, fertilize them on their own. One sperm will make it into each egg, ideally. Um, 
And then the next morning you come back and see how many of them fertilize. That's mm. conventional IVF. Um, ICSI, you do your egg retrieval. We get your eggs. We remove all of the cells that are surrounding them, the, cum the cumulus cells. We see which ones are mature, meaning at the proper stage of meiosis to be fertilized. We do the same preparation for the sperm, isolate the modal sperm from the semen. And then we put it in a drop of media that's really thick so that the sperm can't swim very fast so that we can catch them more easily. <laughs> so weird. That's the whole reason for that. We put them in this thick media. Um, then on a high powered microscope that has the tools set up on top of the stage, um, you have one tool that they both have suction. So I have a video on my Instagram where you can oh, see good. both hands, what they're doing. Uh, one hand is for holding the egg. Mm -hmm. One of the tools is for holding the egg. And the other one is the one for injection. So you just zoom in on the sperm and through morphological assessment, the way they look, mm -hmm. there's certain parameters that you're looking at. Like the head shape should be a pretty consistent oval shape. Um, is the tail coming straight off? Is there only one tail? Sometimes you mm -hmm. get two tails poking right. off there. Um, is the tail coming off? Um, I personally look at how the sperm is moving. Is it mm -hmm. moving in a consistent pattern? They will like change direction. That's fine. But you sometimes get sperm that just swim in a circle. Mm -hmm. Like it's like their head is stuck in one direction and they'll just swim in a big circle. I would avoid those. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so yeah, it's not a perfect science. It's very uh, subjective. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's so wild. Like my daughter's two and a half almost. She's so amazing and beautiful and just spectacular. And it is mm -hmm. crazy sometimes when I look at her and I'm like, you literally came from a surgical needle that plucked half of your genetic DNA out of me and a surgical whatever that chopped your father's testicles apart. And then someone yeah. like you injected mm -hmm. the sperm and egg together. You grew and then you were ventrified or whatever you call it then thawed <laughs> and uh -huh. then injected back into me with a needle and yeah. you here you are i mean it just mm -hmm. blows <laughs> my mind <laughs> it's so yeah. wild let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors did you know that stress impacts egg quality stress increases oxidative damage that negatively impacts your eggs this is why it's important to really support your eggs no matter where you are along your fertility journey I personally love Needed's egg support product. I helped design this formula, so I obviously love it, but even if I hadn't, it would be the one I would recommend to my patients and clients. This formula is an antioxidant and mitochondrial powerhouse that supports the oxidative damage that many things, including stress, can cause. It has key ingredients like L-carnitine, green tea extract, PQQ, and ALA. I love pairing it with Needed's prenatal to get your essential nutrients, as well as their CoQ10 product. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code HEALTHYMOTHER at checkout to save 20% off your first order. Again, visit thisisneeded.com and use code HEALTHYMOTHER. Okay, back to the show. So what do you think about, is it called Zymot testing? Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Um, some mm -hmm. people have asked about that in the sense of, does that make a difference in choosing higher quality sperm or mm -hmm. not really? Like, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the jury's still out. I think technically... 
the name is Zymo or Zymote. Oh, like but, a silent T. How annoying. Well, no, it's like <sighs> the O, it's got two dots over it. But because of oh. the industry, when it rolled out, everyone called it Zymot and that's what stuck. So like, let's no. just keep calling it Zymot. Well, <laughs> okay. like, you guys gonna have a hard name. That's your fault. Yeah, totally. That's just the name of the product. That's um. so the idea of Zymot is um, <sighs> traditionally how we process a semen sample is we use these liquid gradients that have like really fine beads in them that act like a filter. So you put these gradients in a tube, you layer the semen on top of it, and then you centrifuge it. So the sperm will be pushed out of the semen. And then these gradients will act like a filter to filter out ideally the uglier non-modal sperm. So mm -hmm. in the bottom of the tube, it'll concentrate down to just the best, motile or moving sperm mm -hmm. um it's there's data out there it's it, from what i understand it's kind of conflicting data but it exists that potentially centrifuging sperm could negatively impact the dna it could oh, potentially increase dna fragmentation yeah so zymot popped up on the scene saying we have this little plastic device that all you do is put some of the semen in it you layer some media on top of this disc and then there's a filter in there and so the modal sperm are able to swim up out of the semen and into the media so after an hour when you draw the media off you've got modal sperm that have been that have gone through a filter and they were not centrifuge. So the whole idea is avoiding gotcha. the possible negative effects of a centrifuge. Mm -hmm. um, it's just another one of those kind of tough yeah, things in to our industry where mm -hmm. like getting the data and when you first look at the data, it's like, well, is it making a big impact? And it's like, well, no. So people are like, well, then the hell are we using this thing for? But it's like every little thing might add up. Yeah. Um, I first had like many people in our industry, many embryologists, I first had a lot of reservations about Zymot. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, I was hearing part of their pitch was, oh, this device costs you $50 a device, but we recommend charging the patient, mm -hmm. you know, $350. It's like, oh, so it's a, it's a financial Business. incentive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not about the sperm quality. You're just trying to promote doctors to make more money it's like screw yeah. you guys right. like you're gonna bullshit patients sorry you're gonna bs them on mm -hmm. something that you don't know if it even works but just tell the doctor so that was my first like yeah um in theory it's like okay this thing's probably fine mm -hmm. it may you know avoid some of that dna fragmentation um now i don't think that's the approach that clinics are taking luckily they're not trying to upcharge yeah. patients um, I would encourage patients to look at like what they're getting charged for. If they say yeah. they want to use IMOT and all of a sudden there's a $500 uh -huh. add on like, eh. yeah. Right. No. Yep. That's a good point. <laughs> for a piece so, of plastic that's going to save the lab time. Right. Like, Which if they could just like improve their sperm quality, but ugh, it's like, they have to do it sooner. This is why I'm so passionate about getting to men, but ugh, mm -hmm. it's just like, how do we get to them then, speaking? Oh, go ahead. So, and then my experience with Zymot, because we're in our clinic, we're starting to use it a lot more. I, and from day one, 
I've noticed this. I actually find a, I find it harder to find a good morphological sperm mm. from Zymot preps. Okay. And that's interesting to me. Yeah, I that think, is interesting. I mean, they just kind of stuck a filter on their thing and said, this should be good. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they necess necessarily know exactly how that filter is functioning. I'm still able to find good looking sperm, but I find it not always, but typically with the Zymot prep, while the percent motility is higher, like mm -hmm. because it's only sperm they're able to swim up, a lot of the sperm are moving, but to find the ones that look good takes me a little bit longer in the ICSI process. But that's yeah. very right. anecdotal. No, Sean but it data. makes sense. And, you know, from our perspective, poor morphology is a big sign of DNA potential issues and, you know, maybe even causing issues with miscarriage and all sorts of stuff because sperm play a role in that too. It's not all, mm -hmm. all female. But speaking of that, let's talk about the quality of embryos and IVF. So when we're talking about quality, we've just talked about eggs and sperm quite a bit. How do you determine if an embryo is good quality or not? I feel like there's a lot of talk about my, my embryo being good or bad quality. Like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All <laughs> right. So quality, I feel like we need to put quality in quotations. We use that word a lot. Mm -hmm. Quality versus grading. What mm -hmm. we do in embryology is we grade embryos based on you know, kind of industry standards that we've set. Mm -hmm. This is another area that is very subjective. When we look at an embryo, we're going to we're going to grade the quote unquote quality on three parameters. One is level of expansion, which is kind of like the level of development into a blastocyst. Has it made mm -hmm. it to the blastocyst stage, which means there is the blastocyst cavity that's formed in the middle mm -hmm. and then the the trophectoderm cells have been pushed to the outside. So that's the first one, like how expanded is it? Mm -hmm. The next parameter the big one is the inner cell mass, which is the clump of cells that will become the actual baby after mm -hmm. implantation. What we're looking at there is how big is it? How big is that mass? Are the cells pretty well tightly packed together? Because it's multiple cells that have come and compacted together. So how good is the level of compaction? And then the, the trifectoderm cells, the cells around the outside will become the placenta. We're just looking at how many cells does it look like there are? Are they pretty uniform? Are there kind of like long stretched out ones and then some short fat ones? So very subjective. Um, and then we give that letter grading system, A, B, or C for the ICM, intercell mass and the trifectoderm. Mm -hmm. And then most people use the, the Gardner creating system, the numbers for the level of expansion. So um, I think you told me that your daughter was a BB. Yeah. So was it, did it say like four BB? Probably. I don't number? even remember the numbers because I didn't know at the time that that mattered. <laughs> yeah. The number is important. Um, That's like the most important. The number? No. I mean, he said, my doctor said that their lab was really strict. And I'm like, are you just telling me that? Um, you know, to be like a BB is like really good quality or whatever, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I had like a CC embryo and, uh, that transferred, wasn't successful. Mm -hmm. So whether that was the embryo or some other thing, I'm just like, what, like, why would one be successful? Why would one not? There's so many things. And I think, you know, I'm a unique situation in male factor too, where we did have four embryos. I could go through IVF again. Hopefully my husband has more. <laughs> 
tiny sperm. I don't want to have to have them do go through that again. But some people mm-hmm. have barely any eggs and, you know, to have only two embryos, let's say, and both are quote unquote, poor quality or not graded well, or if you lose an embryo, it's just, it's really devastating to people. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, so curious how that, how that goes and, and how much it is just uh, yeah, a subjective kind of look and how much that actually is like, oh yeah, this baby's going to survive or not. Yeah. So this is an area I want to do research in. I'm working on writing up just an initial research concept to bring to my people to see if we can get a study off the ground. But looking at the embryo grade and mm-hmm. the effects of the patient knowing embryo grade mm-hmm. versus if they didn't know the embryo grade. So like in your case, them telling you it's a BB, but our lab's really strict and some other labs, it may have been graded as an AA. Like that kind of, that might give you a little bit of sense of hope mm-hmm. with it versus, okay, so then that one was successful. And then now your next option is your CC. Mm-hmm. And if you're, clinic like really goes through embryo grading with you like i just did you're probably thinking oh cc let's see uh grading does not get any worse than that so (laughs) doesn't sound like i have great odds on that so the study i want to design is you know just having two different study groups one where we tell the patient their grade we explain Mm -hmm. it here and we even have statistical odds on yep if an AA versus a BC, here are mm-hmm. your odds of, of success versus telling a patient embryo grading is very subjective. We want you to rest assured that if an embryologist freezes a blastocyst embryo, like they freeze it because they think it stands a good chance at pregnancy. Yeah. And that they just think they have four healthy embryos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then see if that makes a difference. There's an increase. I I think it's possible that you'd see an increase in success rate with some of those lower graded embryos. Oh, I totally believe that because my doctor told me when we did our first transfer, it was successful, but he wanted me to transfer the CC because he assumed I'd lose the baby. Really? And that's been in my mind for three years. I do. I can't even tell you how much therapy I had to go to before we did that transfer to try to be like, it's going to be fine. Like this baby's going to be fine. You know, like, because mm-hmm. in my mind it was placed there and I've tried to like take it out. This idea that this baby is like worse quality, that like something's not right with it. And maybe mm-hmm. there was something not right with it. And maybe it was an intuition. It's so hard to know because you can't unhear those things. Yeah. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. really interesting. So if you end up doing that study, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, it's just part of the, the, I just think that there's a big psychological aspect of reproduction that yeah, we totally. have, nobody's even tried to really tap into and that really interests me. Yeah, um, so yeah, it, like, I know you had mentioned that. Let's go into that. You were talking about the IVF psychosocial impact and just tell me, mm-hmm. tell me what you're thinking. <laughs> I want to hear it all. I mean, so like your situation saying you saw that your husband did not have sperm Mm -hmm. we see that situation happen not to like induce fear it doesn't happen a ton but it happens Mm -hmm. where couples that sound like you where it was like i mean we weren't even really trying couples that come into fertility clinic right so they come in they're like i mean we've kind of been trying but not like trying that hard but still like you know we were kind of trying we just want to make sure that 
nothing's like off that we need to be aware of. So like, can we just do like some quick testing? And I've, and I've seen this happen where they come in. It's like, all right, yeah, let's do a semen analysis. Um, and uh, shoot, uh, there's nothing here. There's mm -hmm. no sperm. No wonder you're not getting pregnant. You have literally no sperm. Mm -hmm. And you see... It's like a, uh, a switch gets turned on and, you know, I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's a combination of psychosocial, but it seems like there's also a biological connection, I think. Because mm -hmm. it's know, all connected. Everything. Yeah. Connected. Every, every plant animal on this earth is given this ability to reproduce. Otherwise nothing would live yeah. on this planet. Right. And I think there's a definitely biological connection to our reproduction, but you see this switch happen in these patients where they went from, eh, we're kind of trying, we're kind of cool about getting pregnant or not to once they know, Hey, you may not be able to have a biological child. They will then go to the ends of the earth. Like you were saying, like, we'll mm -hmm. do what it takes, cut my testicles open. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, you went from, I don't really care to cut me open. I'll do whatever I need to. Mm -hmm. um to me that's really interesting that's a that's fascinating mm -hmm. like you would think if they were casual about it they'd be like oh well i, I guess you know it's not in the cards like i don't know destiny like mm -hmm. we weren't supposed to you know but no people are like no yeah. i'm gonna do what i what i gotta do um that's one thing um yeah that's <laughs> yeah no it's so interesting i I think that the the psychological component of it all is very interesting. And, you know, from my perspective, I have a lot of theories as to why reproduction is on such a decline. And I think a lot of it has to do with our environment and toxins and our food and, you know, all sorts of things because it evolutionarily and biologically makes no sense. There's no species that could survive in an environment where the environment takes away their ability to reproduce. And, you know, we are a species that creates an environment that literally takes away our reproduction, <laughs> you know, whether we're doing it consciously or unconsciously or as a collective or, you know, on the individual level. It's not like people go and buy, you know, their laundry detergent and they're like, I am going to decrease my fertility by making this purchase. But that is collectively what is happening on some scale. And so I think that there is there's like an assumption especially among men, I find this in my practice because I mostly see women, but I see men because they're partners of the women that I see, where I think that they just assume, as it should be, that reproduction is a is a right that they are just born with, that people can just do that and that why would there be anything wrong with me, you know? And I think this mm -hmm. is kind of the mentality that a lot of men have too about testing. Either they're afraid to see it or they just don't think anything's wrong because why would anything be wrong? Because there shouldn't be anything wrong because we should be able to reproduce because just like you said, we always have been able to. And why mm -hmm. all of a sudden would I need to look, you know, my father, my grandfather didn't have to look. And the thing that blows my mind is <laughs> like, it, it's just crazy. There's probably always been some level of infertility. I mean, we know that there has, but you as a person, your lineage never did. Like every single person who's here right now never had a person above them that couldn't reproduce or they wouldn't be here, right? Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But today, like my husband and I, we would have ended that line. If IVF didn't exist, mm -hmm. we would have ended our lineage that has been going back since the beginning of time. Because if you trace our ancestors back to 
bajillion thousands of years ago, however long, you know, our human line has been along, they have all reproduced to, to, to bring me here and to bring my husband here. And it would have ended with us. Mm -hmm. And it's like that for a lot of people right now. And, you know, IVF was a really hard thing for me to wrap my mind around. I was really against it for a long time because I felt in my mind, like, well, if we can't reproduce naturally, like, are we not meant to, are we not meant to be parents? You know, what's wrong with our bodies that we can't do this on our own. And I was just determined to try to figure it out, to try to figure out there has to be a root cause. There has to be something we have to fix because the natural state of our bodies is to be able to reproduce. And, you know, for whatever reason, whether it was genetic or whatever, it's just, it's a really trippy idea to think about that if IVF didn't exist at this time, because if we had been born in the forties, I tell my husband this all the time. When I look at my daughter, if we had gotten together in the forties or earlier, we would have never had children. We would have been that couple that was, you know, childless. And it's just really crazy to think that like now moving forward, someone like my daughter, as she looks back on her lineage to think like everyone before me obviously could reproduce, like she can't say that. That wouldn't have been true for her. It won't be true for her, which I think is just so trippy. And, you know, there's all sorts of different thoughts and feelings that people have about IVF and like interfering and things like that. But for me, I don't feel like my husband and I are evil. I don't think that we're these like evil people that are like playing God, but it is a really interesting thing to think that like, because the world is the way it is now, for whatever reason, probably man-made reasons, there are a lot of people who their lineage would have ended with them if, if not for people like you and if not for IVF and these advancements that we have, but it is still such a new science. It's such a new thing and it's just really wild. So mm -hmm. it's just a weird yeah. random thought I had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah. So as we wrap up, do you have anything else that you want to say about IVF? Do you have anything to say to people who either are, considering it or maybe people who are really anti-IVF or just any thoughts at all about IVF before or, or what you do embryology or anything mm -hmm. um probably just uh if you feel like you don't understand what is going on uh you you should feel like you're being explained things mm -hmm. like that's one tough thing with the IVF industry is everyone is very busy. Mm -hmm. Every clinic has a lot of patients and you know, there's a lot of biology to go through with a person and it takes some explaining. And I think that's becoming a bit of a shortcoming in our industry is just trust that we're doing what you need, right? <laughs> Which yeah. you can, like, we know what we're doing, mm -hmm. but I also think there's value in like you understanding what the hell is going on. Yeah. Like I'll call patients with updates and sometimes it's kind of complicated information. Mm -hmm. So I'll say it the best I can. And then when I say it's like, do you have any questions? And when, when a patient's just like, uh, nope. I'm like, okay, you don't understand. Yeah. If you didn't understand, you just like want to get off the phone. Like, <laughs> like, okay, like I'm really opening that door. Like I got the time right now. So yeah, yeah. I would say uh, you should feel like you have some power in what's going on and understanding. Um, and 
spermed one of those big one where it's just like, oh, your clinic did a semen analysis and you have sperm. And so they quit talking to the husband. Like I, I'd say dig more mm -hmm. into that. I, I see lots of cases when I'm doing ICSI where it's so obviously a male factor mm -hmm. case and it's not being diagnosed is that once I'm really taking a close look at sperm to inject them. Yeah. Like this girl's, you know, she's 30 years old and got 40 eggs. Like, and you guys are saying this is unexplained. I'm looking at the sperm right now. I it's know. not unexplained infertility. It's not just Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I wish there was more connection between the embryologist and the patients. I think that would be really cool. But mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe someday we'll have to get together and, and create a course. I mean, I have so many courses on all of these things on how to navigate IVF naturally, you know, optimize sperm, investigate male fertility, optimize eggs, mm -hmm. all of that. Um, but the actual embryology part of IVF is not something I have a course on. So maybe one day we'll have to. Do yeah, that you'll yeah, do I it mean, and I'll gap, promote it gap with patient and clinical side. Honestly, like I said, there's this. Yeah. <laughs> We're just hidden back there. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I know we just kept going on and on. I have so many more questions, but I'm going to have to wrap it up. So that's how fine. can people find you? How can people continue to learn from you? I think Instagram is the best. I think I'm a good follow. Uh, I've got some <laughs> fun stuff. I agree. <laughs> I've got some good stuff coming out. Like I'm going to be doing some uh, self-research on myself. I haven't, like this week, I'm probably going to be coming out with this research that I've been working on cool. prepping on myself. So I we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think if you, uh, if you want to see, I don't know, see me experiment with my own sperm, like it's a good time. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm so excited. I'm continuing to follow you. You're, you're such a, a fun account to follow and I'm a nerd. So <laughs> I love all of the stuff Thanks. that you teach too. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sean, for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Healthy as a Mother podcast. In order for others to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. And please remember that the ideas and views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you.